Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is Arctic explorer Penn Haddo, recorded at Exeter Phoenix, July 2018. So, I'm just going to tell you uh, what amounts to my story, and it's going to be a little bit random, and at times you may be thinking, I'm not quite sure why he's talking about this so much, but I hope that by the end, you'll be able to join some of those dots and start to see a picture that is very much your picture of what you take from what I'm saying. First thing I want to say is about uh, explorers. More often than not, people think and say, what's left to explore? I bet you wish you'd been born in the Edwardian period, and basically you're too late. So this whole notion of exploration and being an explorer is old hat and passé and not relevant. So what I want to suggest to you is this. It has never been more important or more urgent in human history to explore. Because if you accept that the natural world upon which we depend entirely for our continued existence is showing signs of stress and strain, then only by understanding it better will we be in a better position to manage our relationship with it. And that's not just understanding it from a technical, scientific point of view, but it's the communication of the the issue, our issues, that the explorers are looking into and working with researchers, that is just as important for the public. So just a relatively small number of scientists knowing what's going on, how the natural world works and its systems, and the interconnectedness of its systems, is not enough. The traditional explorers, they mapped where everything was. And they, on the whole, did that mapping process because they were looking for resources for their mother country. They were sent out on behalf of by, by monarchs, and then by governments, and more recently by business organisations, starting with the whalers, if you like. So by the 1950s, when the satellites came in, we pretty much knew where all the big ecosystems were. The next step is to understand how it works and also to understand in much greater detail where everything is and what relationships are between all these different things, living things, natural processes. So the role of modern explorers is, in my view, to not do the science. We are not scientists. What we tend to be are people who can come up with a vision of what can be done, and we then pull together a large number of different parties, from funders and sponsors and patrons and funding agencies and newspapers and social media. And the better you are at that, the more ambitious and bigger and effective your programme of research or exploration can be, in my view. So, exploration is formed of two words, in a way. There's the exploring bit, which is going somewhere where people have not been before to find something out, a particular thing out. So people may be already living there, but other parts of the global community would like to know information from that area. We aren't, I'm not. I'm setting up a a whole ecosystem, if you like, a whole micro-ecosystem of researchers and communicators and so on who will provide the platform and facilities for them so that they can go in and do that work. So that's the exploring bit. The exploration, exploration, bit, oration, is about the communication. So if you are not finding something out, 
that is of sufficient interest to one or more special interest groups, which might be a very focused scientific group, or it might be the global public community, or it might be UN policymakers. If you're not finding that information, sharing it effectively, you're actually an adventurer, in my view, which is fine, because I've been one of those for a long time, so obviously I'm going to say it's fine. But uh, it's more, I see adventure as more about personal development and capacity building. But it is ultimately all about you, in my view. Whereas exploration is about serving broader society and finding things out and getting it out there. Okay, so that's my little speech to justify why I'm here under intrepid explorers. Right? The intrepid bit hopefully will just sort of emerge. <laughs> Captain Robert Falcon Scott, also known as Scott of the Antarctic, died 19... I've got a hopeless memory, I know I should know, 1912-1913. Here he is in his hut before he set off, so during the winter, Antarctic winter before they set off. And in the background, there's actually a picture of, there are three pictures um, of his wife and his child, who was three years old when he died. The reason, ultimately, one could quite cheerfully argue, many have, why Captain Scott has penetrated the national culture is because of his writing, the quality of his writing. This is actually his journal. This is in the top ten, it's one of the top ten items held in the British Library. This is an extract from it. So basically, make them more interested in the natural world. There are some schools that see that as more interesting than competitive sport. He also said, Get it, keep them out in the, in, in, the, in the open air. So imagine the, the circumstances of this. He's missed being first at the South Pole by six weeks. Amazon got there, and there's a tent left at the pole, so he absolutely knows he wasn't the first. So he turns around, he loses two men on the return, and now there's he and two colleagues left. They get within 11 miles of what would effectively have been safety with new food, massive amount of food and fuel, the famous one-ton depot. But he couldn't quite get there because the weather was so extreme, they weren't in such a terrible personal physiological condition. He knows he is dying, going to die now at this stage when he's writing these words. And between the letters to his sponsors and his friends and his family, he keeps returning to the letter to his wife, Kathleen, who herself was a very interesting, in fact, quite extraordinary woman. Uh, Kathleen, she was Bloomsbury set intellectual, she was a brilliant sculpturist, she was sought out by uh, ministers of state for her advice. I mean, imagine that happening back then. I mean, women were not, their counsel was not sought. Uh, so you start thinking about the genetics that are going to be getting involved. You've got Captain Scott and Kathleen Scott. He kept returning, adding his paragraph. This is one of the paragraphs that he added about his son. Get the boy. The boy is Peter, who's three years old. This is literally the dying wish, the most important piece of information he wishes to pass on to the next generation and the most important person to him in the next generation from one of our most famous, the world's most famous ever, polar explorers. So it is worth putting that context on it. So, this lady is a lady called Enid Wigley. She was taken on by Kathleen to look after Peter, who was three, and she looked after until he was eight. The open-air bit that I referred to earlier in, the, in that journal was about putting Peter uh, uh, through a Spartan regime. So he was left out in, out in the cold for longer and longer periods with less and less clothing. The natural history bit, get the way into the natural world. Kathleen eventually managed to get him hooked up with the director of the Natural History Museum, and as a teenager would go off on expeditions with that great man. So you can start to see that this inculcation, it's all about the natural world. Peter, first of all, was an Olympian. Many people don't know that. He represented Britain in, in sailing. 
He set up the Slimbridge in Gloucestershire, uh, ducks, geese and swans. He set up the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. He also was the uh, predecessor of Sir David Attenborough. Peter was the first television presenter for, of natural history in the world. And the reason why BBC Natural History Unit is based in Bristol, and why our whole conservation thing that's built up in Bristol, is because he said, if you want to make programmes, you're going to come to my house in Slimbridge, and that's where we'll make them every week. <laughs> and so the whole team and that body of experience was built up there, that's why, because of him. He also set up the world's largest or environmental organisation by way of mem by, by, by membership as a, as, a, as, a, as a measure. And you know what that is, WWF. He also, being a brilliantly talented painter, um, I must say that I, I am not, <laughs> this is not a big build up to, but actually, Penny. hello, <laughs> no, no, that's all we're not where it's going. But he also designed the logo, the Panda logo, and he was the founding chairman of the WWF um, for I think about 10 years. And lastly, about Peter, because it is all relevant, these dots I was talking about at the start, he also made a significant contribution to bring about the Antarctic Treaty System that created effectively a science-only reserve. Not a marine reserve, of course, of the continent, but like, like a continental reserve for science-only. So, that brings back to Enid. Enid's next job, after looking after Peter, was uh, to look after my father, and told him all about what she had to do to Peter. And Dad thought it'd be great if he ever had a son, uh, or indeed daughter, uh, that he would give them the same benefits and opportunities as he had. And she was taken on by my father in her 70s to do exactly that. So she was also my nanny. And I was put through a Spartan regime in Scotland, uh, just, just uh, south of Glen, e, uh, Glen Eagles. And, uh, and she lived and died with us. And she brought me up on stories of Scott, Shafton, Mawson, De Gerlash. I knew them as the Antarctic boys, they were like my uncles. And I had endless stories pumped into me from, from the year dot. And, and I now find myself carrying that battle, taking up that battle, as you will see. In brief, much of my work has been around the North Pole. This is the area that I have grown to love. This whole surface cover of ice, it's actually technically known as sea ice cover, is on average, over the whole year, across the whole of the Arctic Ocean, about two to three metres thick about my height, a bit more. That's it. It's a very thin skin, and it's essentially an ocean that's just so cold in the autumns, winters and springs that it can freeze to about two metres in depth. All right? And it's made up of lots of plates from 10 kilometres in diameter to 10 metres in diameter as it gets more and more crushed as, at the longer it spends out here. And it's moved around, especially by the winds, surface winds just catch hold of it and blow it in front of it, so it's like a, like a mega merry-go-round. Uh, and uh, surface currents, of course, and also tides. Tides going up here just like everywhere else. And they can create these cracks that make probably 100 kilometres long and maybe a kilometre wide in some parts. But it's a mobile, endlessly moving around and thinning and thickening surface. This is the great chap, uh, Sir Wally Herbert, in 1968-69. He made a journey by with four, uh, four dog teams uh, and three colleagues from Barrow in Alaska. He took the long, basically the longest possible route right up through the North Pole of relative inaccessibility, then through the North Geographic Pole at 90 North, and then carried on. He did a total traverse and ended up just off Spitsbergen. Unfortunately, uh, within a few, if not the day, I think within three days, man landed on the moon, and all our eyes were focused on the moon and not on this remarkable 15-month achievement. But the point is, in those days, you could go by dog teams. You can't anymore. It's not possible. 
Dogs can swim, sure, but they can't swim and tow enormous sledges. So it's, there's a process of changing how we travel on the surface, across the surface, in the winters and springs when the ice is in the best condition for our travels. Um, this is the route that I did for a solo project. So you've got Greenland here. This is Ellesmere Island. I set off from the base, the, pretty much the northernmost beach, actually, I met called Ward Hunt Island off the northern coast of uh, Ellesmere. And I was going uh, from about, uh, what was it now? Uh, 83 degrees north up to 90 degrees north. This is a sort of summertime picture, so you can see that a lot of open water exists. But I just want to give you a rough idea of the project I'm going to very quickly talk to you about solo. So, I am the only person, or well, I'm sorry, the first person, to ever fall down an actual crevasse. Yeah. Sea ice does not have crevasses, but there is a, 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 the remains of a, of a substantial ice sheet called the Ward, and it's now called the Ward Hunt Ice Shelf. Um, and it's about seven miles from the island, across that as you head north, before you get onto the merry-go-round of, of Arctic uh, Ocean sea ice in the polar pack. And the snow bridges had now become so rotten, I was the first person... You know, that year was the year when some of the snow bridges, which you didn't even realise, frankly, were snow bridges in, in the dips, very gentle dips, were so rotten that when I stood on it, I went through. And the thing that saved me was the sledge jamming across the top. I was hanging my rucksack straps attached to the sledge. I thought, well, no one will believe me because there are no crevasses. So I've got to take a picture. So I climbed out, went further down, and then looked back up onto the photograph. So to prove, I actually fell down the crevasse. Actually... It is some uh, anecdotal evidence, in inverted commas, I think that's an oxymoron, am I right? That's that standard line in science, you, know, uh, you can't have anecdotal evidence. Um, anyway, it's anecdotal evidence of clear warming going on up there, and the effects of climate change. To give you a quick idea, this weighs about 100 and, uh, roughly 130, 140 kilos. It's got all my food and fuel for a 75-day solo project. So I'm not going to be seeing anybody when I set off. Once I set off, that's it and I've got to last for that period of time in a very cold environment, obviously. And it's extremely hard work to pull it on the flat when it's full. You can hardly move it. If you ease off a bit, it just jams. Then you've got to do extra hard work. I mean, we're talking 95% effort to move it at all. Then you've just got to keep going, otherwise it sticks again. This is especially true of the cold of the temperatures. A heavy sledge, minus 40, virtually immovable. It's exactly the same sledge, same load, minus five, and it'll slip along, slide along quite nicely. So there's a very big frictional difference um, based on just temperature. So, of course, the worst news is that when your sledge is at its heaviest at the start, that is actually when the temperatures are at their coldest, and it's when your sledge is at its fullest, and it's when you have most of these. This is where these are pressure ridges or sails, um, where essentially two ice flows have been crunched together and compressed and they crumble upwards and they also crumble sort of up to four, four or five times deeper than they do higher. You could all scramble over that, that'd be quite fun, TBH. But, I'm quite modern and funky really, but the thing is there are four and a half thousand of them that I had to get over. Average height, two metres. Four and a half thousand times two, even my maths tells me that's 9,000 metres and Everest is only 8,848. So that's why we get so very tired. And there are risks associated with it. You'll say, well, do you know, these days, they didn't have phones. Most dangerous space is actually in the tent. Well, it's tiny. You've got two stoves burning for up to, what, three to four hours for minus 
30 to minus 45 degrees outdoor temperature. It's only three degrees warmer in the tent. Because all the heat is made, is used to just to melt snow and ice to make you water. It's not to make you lovely and cosy and warm. Maybe you sort of put up with that, otherwise you, you wouldn't be able to move the sledge because you'd be taking too much fuel. So, you've got two stoves, little um, basically running on naphtha, which is like white gas, lighter fuel from your cigarettes or whatever, broadly made for three to four hours. You are burning up all the oxygen, so you've got hypoxia as an issue. You've got carbon dioxide, poisonous gas, but in relatively low concentrations. You've got carbon monoxide, highly dangerous and genuinely a problem. So, are you, when you're lying there for three to four hours after, on your 30th, 30th day of 15 hours of sledge pulling outdoors, when you're lying down waiting for this stuff to, to melt, are you tired uh, and emotional? No, I'm sorry, are you tired and uh, uh, dozy because you're tired because of the physical effect or because you're being poisoned? <laughs> Answer, always both. There's nothing you can do about it. And in fact, the flames will sometimes just gutter completely. You can't even light that. They will just die down. There is no oxygen left in the tent. If I'd fallen asleep once with carbon monoxide building up, I wouldn't be here. And if you're on your own, there's no one to push you, poke you. If you just, you know, doze off, that's it. Just surviving that is like the hardest thing to override when you're so tired, uh, twice a day. Obviously, you can get injured just messing around in all the ice, getting crushed or having back injuries, leg injuries. If you can't set your tent up, you ain't going to be um, uh, around for very long when it's very cold. Um, if you fall through the thin ice, and you're having to make, you're not just an idiot blundering around, you know, you're making on the whole judgments, I think I can get across this. And if you don't make pretty fine judgments many times a day, you are just reducing your chances of reaching the pole if you're going to take the longer route around. Okay, so you have a choice. So the pressure is on to make fine decisions. Once you break through accidentally, trust me, you're not thinking about making a phone call. Right? It's Operation Panic Stations. And you certainly wouldn't remember the number. Again, phone is useless. The phone is useless. You've fallen asleep and died before you knew you had to make a phone call here. Here you've got a serious back injury, you can't get a tent up. Uh, so you can call them, that's the problem. And this one, if you get gobbled by bears, or well, not gobbled by bears, but you get threatened by bears, you have to uh, sort them out in a few minutes. If you even made the call, there is no possibility of a plane, your plane, anyone's plane, because there are no other planes, reaching you in less than 12 hours. Basically it's 48 hours is what you want to sensibly rely on as a minimum. And then you have to add, however many days until the weather clears and sometimes there are four different landings it has to do on four different runways so you actually can have four different weather systems to get them all aligned so they're nice clear weather for taking up and landing in each of those areas you can start to see it is not very likely so the phone that Scott didn't have and the, uh, and the plane it's all not relevant the only thing this, that phone allows you with is to, is to give up or say, do you know what, I'm going this far, I don't have to go all the way back, and I'll, I'll wait for, you know, as and when, come and pick me up. The ice starts to break up, in the, in the, in the, in the, in you can see how you can get across here, and you couldn't get across that, you can find the route. Once you get to this sort of wider, sort of four or five metres, you're going to have to do something different. So, I developed uh, the immersion suit that's been used before, but I developed a flotation tube that runs all the way around the sledge, and goes underneath it, like a, it's like an inflatable boat, essentially. So the sledge became a sledge boat. And this enabled me to take a straight line. So I was the first person in history to set off from Waterhunt Island and know that it was going to be 416 nautical miles or 770 kilometres. Straight line. I wouldn't have to start wiggling around. That's why people weren't making it. 15 people had tried from special forces, explorers, guide, professional guides, and everyone was failing. I failed twice. I failed in 1994 and in 1998. And the reason was it was going to be a much more complex and challenging environment because there was so much more water, so that you have to wiggle your way longer and longer. So the route was getting longer. 
but you're putting a maximum amount of food and fuel, so you're running out of food and fuel. So this is what I did. Uh, it turns out that, that swimming is a social activity. Uh, for most of us. This was hideously, not antisocial, but very weird. I felt very self-conscious uh, making these swims. And sometimes you couldn't even know, you couldn't see a far side, so it's open water. Uh, you can see the ice just sort of flexing there. And it just gives us another, another perspective. This is a very thin skin that we have. And whether we have it or don't have it is pretty marginal. Of course, you're entirely vulnerable to polar bears as well. And you're behaving more like a seal than ever. Uh, when you're <laughs> like this. Uh, an ungainly seal. But uh, if I had to do anything sort of brave, screw up my nerve and, and all of that, it was doing this. I did it for 35 hours out of 850 hours. I was in the water 35 of the 850 actually travelling along. And I got to the North Pole, some of you may remember, uh, in uh, May the 19th, 2003. I got many, many things emerged from that, but the biggest one was, gosh, 35 hours I was in the water out of the 850. My peers in the polar community were really shocked that that's, in effect, how much time I was saving by just getting in the water and straight lining it the whole time. So out of this solo project, um, I set up Arctic uh, Survey, which was sponsored by Cabin, and that was an international $10 million, big, sort of, or relatively big for, for, for a private enterprise. Um, this wasn't government-supported. Um, and we set up a village, well, a research facility, just like British Antarctic Survey might set up at a base. But it was there for 12 weeks um, on the sea ice, right on the edge of the Arctic Ocean, in the northernmost islands of, of, of um, Canadian Arctic. We would invite um, researchers from University of Exeter, there were several from University of Exeter, for example, and the Plymouth Marine Laboratories who came up. And we were looking at several strands of research. Essentially, the scientists had one hole in the ice, and there were a few other experiments within a few metres of a special tent that was set up permanently. We kept this open. So they were doing an analysing in great detail of one hole. And then an exploration teams would go out, normally four of us normally, and do a very long spatial distance, not a single site, gathering similar data. And then we were trying to work out how much can we infer about what's going on way out in the Arctic Ocean from a relatively easy, cheap place for, for, for science to operate from. Um, because it's so difficult, as you can see, to do science in every respect. It's too hazardous, too uncomfortable, too expensive, and so on. So, and we were looking at uh, several themes. We were looking at the thickness of the ice, we know the area almost every day, almost exactly within a square kilometre. The satellites have been much less good until very recently on looking at how thick it is. If you know the area and you know the thickness, guess what? You know what the volume is. And it's a mass balance of their products. We also looked at ocean acidification, which is a very much an emerging scientific field of great interest. And, and again, uh, University of Exeter and Plymouth University have been doing lots of work in the Plymouth Marine Laboratories. And we also looked at circulation. How does the forming of sea ice in the winter basically provide the downflow of water at the northernmost end of the North Atlantic Drift, the Gulf Stream. All that water comes back along the seabed to the, to, um, the Gulf of Mexico, up it wells up again, where it's very hot, because hot it rises and it expands, and, so on, and then it comes along the surface. If you don't have any sea ice, you don't have any downpush, so then what happens to the Gulf Stream and the North Atlantic Drift Stream itself? So. 2012 was the least amount of sea ice that's ever been recorded on the Arctic Ocean. Almost 45% had gone uh, in the summers. So this is really where my work is now. I started the adventure with the survey stuff. I built up my capacity as an adventurer to, to be able to do bigger things. I built up my reputation, my skills in how to set big projects up. And then I did Arctic Survey, which was about science. And I had a sort of, you know, 
This science stuff can go on forever. It almost can be an excuse for policymakers. We just want a bit more science, please. We want to understand things a bit better. They never say, when we reduce the level of uncertainty on any particular subject to X, well, they make a decision, and the decision will be this. So I thought, right, I believe we now need to protect this. The CI is not where if the CI is. It, look, it's gone. This and this area, that's all gone. See, the other it's gone in the summertime. We have a problem right now, and it's getting worse. So protection, supported by ongoing science, to build the scientific case for the policy to create a marine reserve, which is really where I am at. That's the rest of my life's work, the next 15 years, if I'm 70. I really am that old. So, uh, this line is really important. This is marked out 200 miles offshore. This is all national territorial waters. The purple is um, Russia, the green is Greenland, Canada, America, and a little bit for Norway. These are national territorial waters. They can do whatever they like in the water, on the water, a seabed, and under the seabed. Now, you've all heard about territorial rights claims, perhaps, about the Russians are claiming the North Pole and blah, blah, blah. All these countries, except America, are simply claiming as, as far as they can out from their existing given borders <coughs> into this area. But the only thing they can claim is the, is the seabed and the subseabed. There is no legal mechanism in international law that will allow you or enable you to acquire rights to international waters. International waters are international waters. We all have equal responsibilities and opportunities. That is an area that is nearly 3 million square kilometres. They are international waters, also known as high seas. And the, and the UN runs the high seas through a thing called the High Seas Treaty. It would be, and will be, the largest marine reserve in the world by about three times uh, the current biggest. So last year, I thought, let's show people what we can do with tiny little boats compared to big commercial fishing vessels. So I'm just going to rattle through these, just to give you a picture of So we have two boats, both 50 foot, the former one was of steel, this is the aluminium. Those are the two skippers, Eric de Jong and Francis Brown, who owned the ships and designed the ships and built the ships, almost every part of it themselves. They're highly competent and they specialise in sea ice. We set off from Nome, went through the Bering Strait, went up as far as the sea ice would allow uh, into the Arctic Ocean. Here's a sort of sort of an image just to show you that you know, at one level people think, well, we know quite a lot about the Arctic Ocean, really. We know where all the water is. The red water tends to float around on the top uh, because it's warmer and less dense, and the cold waters tend to obviously be more dense and flow along the bottom, really speaking. So we seem to know quite a lot about flows of water. Um, however, that's a totally false image because this is a quite interesting sort of seabed map, and the main thing to say here is, I think, we have absolutely no idea whatsoever of the animal life and indeed plant life that lives in that area, superimposed that international waters. Because no one's ever been able to go in there. It's been blocked. It's a de facto marine reserve because the sea ice stopped ships getting in. Now they can get in in the summer times, as you can see, because it's open water in large areas. This is the, the I would suggest this is the least explored environment on the planet. And there's some very interesting work, especially in the depths in these canyons, as to what's living there. We had um, Tim Gordon from the University of Exeter Biosciences uh, doing some, uh, uh, basically running six uh, research grants. The research, as you know, uh, science science takes a year, two years, three years, even work maybe four years before it gets published in an academic journal. And the scientists, because you are what you are, um, are highly disinclined to say anything about what they are discovering, finding, until it has been published and accepted by their you know, full peer review process. And quite understandably and correct too. 
So we are going to wait some time. But the single most interesting finding, and I would even try to put it as a discovery, and again, it's a personal discovery, but by golly, it's a powerful discovery. What do you see there? How many animals do you see? Anyone see one? No? My point is, you are looking at billions of animals, and at a lower small scale, life forms. You're looking at it in the air above, on the surface, within the ice. This darker colouring here is dead uh, plant life, under the, on the undersurface of the ice, and the water column below. That is rammed with life. And I thought, what this is really, is a floating ice reef ecosystem. It's, it's like a reef, it's just like a coral reef, and Tim Gordon, quite rightly said, got back across and said, Penn, you don't even go there. Do not go there, they'll undermine everything, blah, blah, blah. But it's, it, it, there are many characteristics that are reef-like, but it is an ice reef, in my view, and it, and it's, and it is an entire ecosystem. So this, to, to use that phrase, has already got traction in the United Nations for the Arctic Ocean, to help people realise we're not looking at a boring geophysical process, sea ice loss. Okay, that's not really getting anyone fired up. Most grannies walking down the street will tell me, you better hurry up, dear, because you know, the sea ice is on its way out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on, come on. It's, sea ice loss is habitat loss. That's a habitat right there. And it has massive consequences as it gets less and less. It's, so the animals and plants are already stressed. Not only that, but we can now get in for the first time and exploit it. Commercial fishing and commercial mining and commercial shipping in particular. This is a hyper-fragile environment. It's dark across the year and it's cold, so everything goes very slowly. Longest living animal in the world. This, my favourite, the Greenland shark. 512 years is the likely oldest so far, but 450 easy. And the females cannot breed on the breeding condition until 150 years old. You imagine hoovering up accidentally lots of Greenland shark. The recovery period is enormous. These guys, some of them are alive right now that were alive when Henry VIII was on the throne. I'm going to stop there and simply say that this is what needs to be protected. There's a lot of really wonderful animals, but it's more about resilience, global ocean biosystem resilience that I want to protect this, and that's my mission. Thank you very much. <laughs>